to the Autism Journal podcast. My name's Robin Stewart, I'm autistic, and today I am joined by Rosa and Beth. Um, Maybe you could both briefly introduce yourselves, please. Hi, Robin, thanks very much. I am uh, Rosa Hoekstra, and I'm a senior lecturer in psychology uh, at uh, King's College, London, and I've been working uh, for the last couple of years with colleagues in, in Ethiopia studying autism and other developmental disorders in the Ethiopian setting, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Beth. Hello, Robin. Uh, my name is uh, Bethlehem Takola. Uh, originally, I'm from Ethiopia, but I have lived uh, in the UK for the last uh, 10 years. I've been uh, working with Rosa and Ethiopian colleagues uh, on uh, developmental disorders. Uh, so I'm based at King's College London. Okay, great. Um, so Beth, this study is about, um, uh, this study is set in Ethiopia, obviously. Um, and uh, maybe listeners like me, um, haven't been to Ethiopia. So could you maybe tell us a bit about what Ethiopia is like um, and what is available in terms of services, what the challenges are and what the opportunities are um, for autistic people and their families? Okay, uh, to begin with, Ethiopia is in East Africa. Uh, uh, It is the second most populous country in Africa after Nigeria, uh, with a, a population of over 104 million. Uh, Ethiopia's population is highly diverse uh, with different languages and ethnic groups. Uh, Amharic is Ethiopia's official language, uh, but English is the language of instruction in secondary and higher education. Uh, About 85% of the population lives in rural areas and the majority of these works in agriculture. Uh, Despite progress in recent years, uh, the majority of people in Ethiopia lack access to clean water and sanitation and uh, have no internet connection, access to the internet, except in Addis Ababa, which is the capital city of Ethiopia, uh, and a few urban centers. Most houses are uh, built of mud and tin roofs, and in rural areas, uh, the traditional tukul is still the most common dwelling. In Ethiopia, we don't know about the prevalence of autism, uh, and generally that's true for Africa. Uh, There is very limited service provision for children with autism and their families in Ethiopia. In terms of health professionals, for example, there is only currently one formally qualified child psychiatrist in the country, Uh, and also uh, there is high stigma uh, and generally low level of awareness about autism. And generally, autism and intellectual disability are often attributed to supernatural causes. What do you think the opportunities are in Ethiopia? So, as, as Beth sketched, um, there are, the services at the moment are severely limited for kids with autism and, and other developmental disorders. Most kids remain unidentified. Uh, they are, we know from previous work led by Beth, that uh, um, many children are remain hidden away at home because of the stigma and because communities and parents are often not aware of what autism is. They often don't seek help or they seek help from traditional uh, institutions rather than biomedical institutions. So often a formal diagnosis is never made and there are no real services also 
after the diagnosis is made. So most kids with developmental disorders are not in school. They are systematically excluded from mainstream schools, for example, because they are not toilet trained or they can't sit still. Um, so most of the kids remain at home uh, with very little help and support for the parents. And that is, uh, uh, so those are one of uh, some of the main challenges that uh, families and, and service providers have told us about in the past. The World Health Organization, WHO, um, have developed a program for educating um, parents and other people providing care to autistic people, is that right? Yes, exactly. So so the challenges that, that Beth described and, and that I alluded to are true in Ethiopia, but that they're actually true in many low-income contexts in the world, uh, where services are often uh, limited, uh, only available for, for uh, um, a very small number of people, and even then the services might not be quite adequate. So the WHO realized uh, we need to do something about this. Just simply raising awareness and, and getting kids diagnosed is not enough if then subsequently there are no services available. So what they did is they uh, developed a program which they called it the WHO Caregiver Skills Training Program or CST program that they hope will be suitable for use in low resource contexts. The kind of big idea behind it is that the main people that the program targets are the parents. So uh, if you equip the parents with skills and strategies to help support their child's learning, then the parent will benefit, but also the child will directly benefit because the child will get more opportunities to learn. The parent will increase the understanding of how their child tries to communicate, and this might ultimately also help in uh, uh, reducing challenging behaviors and, and reducing unhelpful beliefs, like, for example, that physical punishment will help in getting the child to learn things, which is still a, a common belief in Ethiopia. Um, so the, the WHO developed this training for caregivers of kids with developmental disorders. And the idea is that the program uh, can be delivered by non-specialists. It should not require, for example, a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist to deliver the training to parents. If it did depend on that, then you could never scale it up because there are no clinical psychologists or child psychiatrists in rural Ethiopia, and, and they're not available in many other countries in the world either. So the, the, the idea is that the training can be delivered by non-specialists. Uh, all the, the necessary information is in the manuals that the WHO developed. And the training is delivered to caregivers in groups. So up to 10 caregivers sit together in a group and they attend nine sessions and each session has a particular topic. And then in addition to make sure that the training doesn't just kind of address general issues, but is also specifically catered to each individual family, and the facilitator of the program also visits the family at home three times during the program. So they do it once before the group session starts to get to know the parent and the child and to discuss, well, what are the specific difficulties of this child? What is that developmental level? What should we focus on? What would we like to achieve in the program? And then they visit the family once midway through the program to troubleshoot and to see how things are going. And then once at the end, to kind of round off and try get the parent to reflect so that hopefully what they've learned in the program they can also take further in the future. Who looks after their children while they're part of the program? Do the children come to the program as well? How does that work? 
Very good question and uh, a, a big issue and actually something that we had to change. So the WHO hoped or anticipated that uh, there would be another family member available who could take care of the child whilst the main caregiver went to the training. What we found, uh, especially in Addis Ababa, so in the urban area where families tend to live in nuclear families, so it might just be a mom and her child, there might not be anyone else, uh, is that the parent could not find anyone else to take care of the child, so that they would have to bring the child with them to the training. And we had to arrange childcare on site. So what we did is we had one room where the parents were were trained by a facilitator and we had a separate room where a psychiatric nurse with experience in, in, in children with developmental disorders was taking care of the children. In the rural areas where we also pre-tested the program, their families tend to live more in extended families. So there, there might be an auntie or a grandmother who can take care of the child. So then there were fewer parents who were bringing their child, but there were still always some parents who had to bring their child. So our experience was that actually it is essential to arrange childcare on site. We cannot expect parents to leave their child at home because there is typically always some parents who don't have support available. Okay, and Beth, can you tell me about how you adapted the program for the Ethiopian context? Basically, we used a combination of methods. We arranged consultation meetings with uh, local stakeholders, including uh, representatives from the Ministry of Health, uh, three centers uh, for autism and intellectual disability and local non-governmental organizations and professionals working on autism. We received feedback also uh, on the content, length and intensity of the program from local professionals, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists who, who took uh, a training uh, from WHO. Based on their feedback, and also after the parents attended, attended the uh, program, we interviewed them. So we included all these two processes to uh, make the program uh, suitable for the Ethiopian culture and context. Okay, and Rosa, can you tell us what the what you what the results of doing these sessions were, and what the kind of feedback was from the parents? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we generally found that that the program uh, was really relevant to families' needs. So we were we were delighted to find that they said this program exactly focuses on on the difficulties that I experience in my day to day life. So so parents reported they found it very relevant to their lives they are pretty there was no one who dropped out of the program so everyone wanted to continue to come <laughs> and if anything uh, the difficulty was with the prospect of the program ending so um, caregivers sharing concerns to say well, well what is next I've now <laughs> met other people I've, I've really felt supported by this program but it is now about to end and now now my support stops um, so the program was was deemed to be highly relevant uh, parents liked taking part in it and they also reported some specific benefits so so one of the things they really benefited from is meeting 
other caregivers who lead similar lives to them. Again, because of the high stigma and the lack of awareness in the Ethiopian context, many families think that they're the only ones in the world with with child with uh, with these difficulties. So for them, it was a huge relief to realize actually there are other parents in similar situations and to share their experiences with these other parents they found uh, very supportive and it and it helped them in the in their mental health uh, it was also a more practical sort of sharing experiences and learning from another um, so there were great benefits in running these sessions in groups uh, in that respect and parents also described uh, um, more practically how they felt that some of the strategies helped them in in uh, in uh, supporting their child's development. For example, it's quite common in Ethiopia and, and also in some other African countries to believe that children with developmental disorders are unable to learn. So parents continue to feed their child, dress their child, because they think, well, he will never be able to do this by himself. And throughout the program, they realized, actually, my child just learns a bit slower but my child does have a capacity to learn. And so they shared in delight some of the progress that they observed, that they could now see that actually their child was, was holding up an arm when when the parent was trying to, uh, to get a jumper over their head. So they started to realize actually the child is anticipating what is happening and, and can ultimately learn to put on the jumper himself. Um, so they, they reported some concrete benefits on what they'd learned from the program in terms of sort of practical skills and strategies to support that child uh, and and also reported that it helped them in their well-being and in, in, in reduction of stress. I know that um, the World Health Organization has, I guess you'd call it the WHO qual, the um, well, uh, World Health Organization quality of life uh, measure. And I just wondered whether... Um, you'd use that for this study or whether if you did another study you might think about using it yeah excellent question we did consider using we so in in the study that we've published so far all the work was qualitative so Beth interviewed the caregivers who took part and she also interviewed the facilitators who administered the program uh, to learn about their experiences what they liked about it and how they felt it could be further improved so the work so far was all qualitative what we have done in a subsequent step that isn't yet in 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 the paper we're discussing now um, was introducing some quantitative measures and and we're hoping to soon start a much bigger evaluation where we can also really look at the uh, statistically on on whether the program can make a difference in the parents mental health or in the child's well-being rather than using the measure that you're talking about so the the who qual uh, we are using a slightly different measure called the PetsQL, where we look more specifically on uh, the impact of the child's condition on family functioning and the caregiver well-being. So it is not a kind of well-being questionnaire overall, but more specifically related to the child's condition. You know, maybe researchers in the UK should be thinking more about reaching out to countries that are very different to where we live because it might be good for learning, but also because we have lots of resources like, pretty, you know, a large proportion of the UK has the Internet. So we have all these resources. So uh, maybe there's things we can do to try and um, redistribute resources a bit in a way so that um, more people can benefit. 
it helps to be mindful of, of how, uh, you know, ultimately there's only a minority of the population who lives in high income countries like, like the UK or the US. There are many more kids who live in low and middle income countries. Uh, what can people contribute? Be happy that the UK contributes 0.7% of their GDP to international development and lobby the government to continue doing so. Uh, um, give generously to charities who try make uh, work better. And uh, knowledge sharing is definitely an important component or can be an important component. I haven't heard an autistic person not say that it's kind of the point of no return and like once somebody is having a meltdown the best thing you can do is keep them safe but what you need to do is to try and reduce the likelihood of a meltdown whereas I can see that a parent that might not have had much knowledge about autism might just see that as a tantrum and treat it the same way as a tantrum but um, I think a lot of the things that we take for granted that we know about autism have um like the that sort of track has been almost suggested by autistic people um maybe not formally but like for example sensory issues you wouldn't necessarily know by looking at someone's behavior that they have sensory issues absolutely and and i am acutely aware that in what is lacking in, in our Ethiopian work is because autism is pretty much only ever recognized if there is also substantial intellectual disability and the child is nonverbal. I, do, I don't have an Ethiopian Robin that I can talk to uh, because it is not uh, identified. But all that you are saying makes me think what I really like of what you're describing is that it makes um, the sensory issues concrete. And if anything, I think it is especially with sensory issues that, that some of the materials are quite um, intangible or not necessarily that easy uh, and practical to recognize the significance of. I bet that there are some papers on, I haven't, I haven't, particularly published on sensory issues but I bet there are some papers out there about autistic experiences of sensory issues that, that you know are, are published and that you would be able to to quote from so I think that like the information is out there and also the autism education trust what I'm actually supposed to be saying is that you can go to journals.sagepub.com forward slash home forward slash aut and aut is spelled a-u-t uh, and that's the um, autism journal website and you can follow us um, on twitter and our twitter handle is at journal autism and uh, rosa and beth do you guys use twitter do you have a twitter handle you'd like to share with our listeners in case they have questions Yes, absolutely. Uh, I can be found on, on Twitter um, as Rosa underscore Hoekstra. Uh, and so let me spell my surname because that might not be intuitive. My surname is H-O-E-K-S-T-R-A. And mine is bet.takola, B-E-T-H-T-E-K-O-L-A. Great. Um, well, so uh, so you, you definitely, listeners, you can carry on the um, the conversation, um, and thank you very much uh, for listening. And I have to say, thank you, Rosa and Beth. Uh, I've been the host, Robin Stewart, and this is the Autism Journal podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>